Hey everyone, this is Caleb, and I am so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast, and I am honored to be joined by Tyler Staten today as well to talk with him about his brand new book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. Now, if this is your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, I do want to tell you about a couple of things that inform pretty much everything that we do here on the podcast. And the first one is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. And the second thing is that we believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them. And we believe that we can learn from anything and from everything as well, whether that be something trivial or something a little bit more serious. And the last one is this, is that we want to be the person who was there for us, or maybe the person that we wish was there for us. You know, the the mentor that maybe we wish we had, or the mentor that was there for us, and we want to return it to the next generation. Now, If you enjoy learning, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, I do want to tell you about one way that you can continue to learn and grow, and that's by subscribing to my newsletter, to where I create a list each and every single week of some of the best things that I'm learning from, some of the things that are making me think, some of the things that I'm just enjoying, whether that be podcasts or articles or movies or music or or just anything in general. And you can check out the show notes for the link to sign up for my newsletter on that. Now, today, much of our conversation is going to dial in around this conversation of, of prayer. And here's, here's why this conversation matters is because it goes back to the first thing that we talk about is sometimes I think it could be difficult for us to believe that it is, that it's okay for us to have difficult conversations with God. And what we're going to find out in this conversation with Tyler is that we have permission to have difficult conversations with God about our feelings, about whether or not things are going well, or whether we wish things were going better. And that that actually honors God. And so we're going to talk about that here in just a minute and talk about how to engage in some of those types of conversations. But before we do that, let me tell you a little bit about Tyler, and then we're going to go right into the conversation. So Tyler Staten is the lead pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, and the national director of 24-7 Prayer USA. He is also the author of the book Searching for Enough, The High Wire Walk Between Doubt and Faith, and of the most recent book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. And he currently lives in Portland with his family. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Tyler, it's so good to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, I'm so glad to be with you, Caleb. Thank you for welcoming me on. 
Yeah, definitely. And you know, we're going to we're going to talk a lot about your recent book called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. But before that, uh there's just a couple of things that I would just be curious uh to just 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 ask you about and get uh get your take on some of the things. And yeah. just going through yeah, going through the book and even um even just listening to you uh speak before one of the things i could tell you about you is that you are very like curious and you love learning as Mm -hmm. well and so i would love to just ask what is currently like capturing your imagination about right now or what can't you stop thinking about or wanting to learn more about right now wow that's an interesting question and my honest answer is kind of a dangerous one yeah yeah my honest answer is uh I've been reading up a lot on the theology of the body. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm really interested. You know, there's a, a Catholic Pope, Pope John Paul II, who famously like uh, spent, I think, two years teaching on nothing except the biblical theology of the body. And, you know, I, I happened to lead a church at a time when in the West, the biggest questions uh, that people are asking typically come down to the body that we're in, uh, whether it's questions in regards to sexuality or questions in regards to race. And so I've been kind of doing a deep dive on w- what does scripture teach about our bodies? What is an embodied spirituality? And what is what is good news uh, when it comes to the bodies that we're in and what we do with the desires that we carry and the limitations that we carry in our bodies. So I don't, I haven't been crafting any content or anything. I yeah. don't know if I ever will, but, but I've just been trying to read from a wide swath of people interacting with that material. And it has been fascinating me. You know, it's been that kind of thing yeah. that trusted friends. I'm like, have you ever thought about this? And so that, that's what I've been reading and thinking about lately. Yeah. Talk to me about like uh, one or two things that have just really stood out or maybe even that you've changed your mind about since diving into some of this, uh, this research and learning hmm. or, or maybe gained a greater appreciation of any, yeah. anything like that. I think I've gained a greater appreciation of how profound an act the incarnation is that God becomes embodied. Um, I think yeah, just my my mind has expanded in what's happening there. And I would say also how sacred sex is, to be honest, like how sacred our sexuality is and the act of sex um, when framed within the biblical story. And that has then prompted all these different questions in my mind and all these different appreciations in my mind. But, but I think like essentially, I, I think... I've been viewing more and more of life as sacred and being able to see more and more normal things in life, normal things about myself or others. Uh, I'm maybe a greater appreciation of what the Imago Day means is, is the best summary. Like, what does it mean that man and woman are made in our image, in our likeness, as it says in Genesis? And that's the question that drew me in. And it is, I think my my imagination for that, and then where I'm seeing that theme play out in scripture is just growing and growing and growing. And it's kind of like, man, I am in a 
I, I started digging here and I don't know how deep this, <laughs> this hole goes, but I'm still going. Yeah. What are, and it, what are, what's one of the, maybe the nuances or something like that, that made you gain that greater appreciation or that made you think that way a little bit more, whether it was a writing or just a passage in scripture or something like that. Yeah. Let me think about that. I think, I think I, I don't even know if I, uh, I would say this, this was an interesting insight to me. And, and it's dangerous to say anything about it because I don't know what I agree with yet, yeah. you know, yeah. but it's pure, like, that's interesting. I've never thought about yeah. that. Well, um, that's, that's one of the big things of the pot of the, just this podcast. Too. Yeah. 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 So I think discovering, um, you know, it would be, I'm not Catholic, but a lot of Catholic understanding of the body, uh, talks talks about the fact that when the enemy uh took aim at god's plan for human flourishing he took aim at the relationship between man and woman warping their view of one another uh mm -hmm. they wear fig leaves and cover up and i think i've always viewed that as an individual oh they both felt shame before god and before each other so they covered up they realized they were naked but, but some of what I've been reading is, no, this is actually like the greatest image of God on the earth is then under attack to essentially mar God's image. And then that theme playing out throughout scripture. And I'm kind of like, huh, I, I have never thought about it that way. I don't know that I agree that that's what is going on in Genesis 3, but I'm really interested in that yeah. train of thought and tracing that theme. Mm, yeah, you got you got me intrigued by that too. <laughs> um, another thing, and and one of one of the statements, just as I was uh, preparing for this conversation, I was looking on your website, and I saw that you have this quote on there to where you're you're talking about your experience writing your first book, Searching for Enough, mm -hmm. and you say, in writing my first book, Searching for Enough, I had two important realizations. The first was that the most people who have most profoundly shaped my view of Jesus and what it means to follow him are dead. Writing is a medium of communication that lives beyond our numbered days. What if something of my journey with Jesus could continue to bear fruit in the lives of others long after my days have drawn to a close? And the second was that you actually learned that you loved writing and you loved it enough to want to do more of it. Can you just talk to me about that? And even whenever you first started, like realize had that realization of of just that. Yeah, you, you know, everyone is a different kind of teacher, I guess, who, who gets to teach the Bible on a regular basis, like I do. And the feedback I've often gotten is that I'm a um, kind of a poetic teacher. That I I it's some people would say like, it seems like you're a writer first. And, and, and so people would ask me when I was like in my mid twenties, Hey, do you think you'll ever write a book? And I kind of had a stock answer, which was, I think cloaked in really well-intended cynicism, which was maybe when I pastor a church for 30 years, then I'll have something worthwhile to say and I'll put it down on paper. 
but there's way too much noise in the limited evangelical market uh, in terms of books. So I don't feel a need to turn a sermon series into a book uh, to try to make a profit on it. And, and I think that was, that came from a place of what I think is a legitimate critique of, of much of the content that gets packaged and put out uh, in the Christian literary market and a, a cynical lack of understanding as well um, and just kind of blanket statements, but that's basically what I'd say. And then I had just a, a moment of realization when a friend of mine asked me that question about writing that I really, really respect and, and look up to. And he's someone that can really speak into my life. And, and I remember having this conversation with him and then about a week went by and then I was uh, cycling home from work uh, one day. And as I was riding my bike home, this thought just occurred to me. I just thought about the people that I would say, like, who has shaped your view of God the most? And there's a couple people that I'm really close to relationally. And then there's like three to five people that I've never met and aren't alive anymore. And I just thought, wow, that's incredible that I have a relationship with this person and God never put us on the earth at the same time. I wonder if I should become less cynical about writing and I should begin to think maybe this is a way for me to share my journey with Jesus in a way that could bless not just the, the church of my time, but people like me who are trying to lead churches, you know, four generations from now. And probably nothing I write will live that long, uh, like it has the people that I admire. But if it does, what a beautiful thing that would be. So that's kind of where all that came from. Yeah, no, I I love that so much, which is why I wanted you to talk about it. Who are one of the the people that you mentioned that are are dead, they're long gone, and yet they have uh, influenced you? And how, what's one way that they've influenced you? I mean, one would be Henry Nouwen. Um, Mm -hmm. and Henry Nouwen has influenced me in probably just the depth of my spiritual life more than anything else. Um, he, he writes from a place of incredible depth and clearly has a romantic understanding of what it means to walk with Jesus over the long haul. And when I say romantic, I mean, he's allowed his heart to be wooed by God. Um, And he awakens that longing in me and gives really simple, concise language to how to express that longing. Another would be Eugene Peterson, who recently passed, you know, but Mm -hmm. Eugene Peterson is a theological giant. I mean, he, you know, he was, and yet his writing, it comes from his bones. Not, you know, it's like when I read him, I'm like this, this guy's writing this because he's lived it and he's perceived it in his world and in his time. This is not library writing. This is like active lived writing. Um, And so when I read him, I have this longing to, live, to borrow his phrase, to live a long obedience in the same direction, that I might not just get this stuff understood, but get it lived in the context of my simple, ordinary, everyday life. So that's a couple of people. Yeah. 
Yeah, talk to me because the thing that stood out to me from that is for both Eugene and for Henry Nowen as well that you mentioned is just this, um, like whenever you read them, you can tell, okay, not only do they believe this, but they live this out mm-hmm. as well. Talk to me about that for you of how you've learned to balance, whether you know it's preaching a sermon or writing a book or something along those lines of just that tension of like living out your faith, you know, in, in this case, it could be for your new book for prayer as well, or even just living that out with the tension of like, you're not perfect or you're, you're not Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for me, I, I tried to live and speak with complete honesty. So mm-hmm. I tried to make a habit of, confessing in front of my church in a way that I think is healthy and right and make a habit of naming, uh, using my, my failures as illustrations more than my successes. Um, and I think if you, if you occupy a position like I do, something that you choose is that my spiritual life is in some ways an open book. And so what that means is I have to choose to prioritize some things as in secrecy between me and God. And I mean, what I mean is like trivial and simple, but like I have to have amazing experiences with Jesus that I just decide never going to tell a soul about that because so much of my spiritual life gets shared with everyone and that feels like a special thing between me and God. Like, hey, this is just me and you and no one will ever know. And then in other ways, I think I have to be willing to say my journey with Jesus is, is one that moves forward and fits and starts and two steps forward and one step back. And I'm inviting you into the middle of a story that I'm living and hopefully not the destinations I've arrived at, but the, the journey I'm in the process of walking makes you want to walk the same journey, not even necessarily behind me, maybe beside me, maybe a couple steps ahead of me, but that if there's something of my journey that can motivate you to keep going on the same one, that's what I'm trying to offer to people. Yeah, I want to go back to what you mentioned about like the secrecy that you have between you and God. Is that just something to where like you just feel like the spirit is like, yeah, this is just between you and me? Or how do, how do you figure out between like sharing it with the congregation and just going like, no, this is just between me and God? Yeah, um, I guess I figure it out with with the spirit. I think it's both rhythmic and individual. So there's sometimes individual stories or moments that I feel that about. And then there's other times like I have one place that I go and community that I'm around. It's not a church community, um, but it's a way that I follow Jesus in the city of Portland that I live in. And no one knows who I am there or and no one knows that I go there on a regular basis. And it's a committed rhythm that only my immediate family knows about. And that's important to me. It's just like, Jesus, this is a place that uh, is totally about me being your disciple and in no way is about me trying to help other people be your Mm -hmm. disciples. And I've kind of always had a place like that, um, one of those environments. So maybe to try to be more specific, because this doesn't exist anymore. But when I was in Brooklyn, 
which is where I lived for the last 12 years prior to moving to Portland a year ago, um, I would go to a monthly AA meeting uh, with the close friend I had at my church who was in recovery and who came to Christ in our church and just happened to become a really close friend of mine. And he, he invited me once to one of his meetings. And in New York City, the meetings are big. You know, it wasn't like 12 chairs in a circle. It was like a couple hundred people in a church basement. And I encountered so much of the power of the spirit and the a longing for who uh, the type of church that I long to see yeah. that that just became a rhythm. And I said, Hey, can I just come with you as an imposter once a month? And so we do that once a month I'd have dinner with him yeah. and I go to a meeting and I would be in the midst of confession and prayer sometimes and get to know people and their stories and then get to know mine. And while I was an imposter, uh, people always welcomed me as an imposter. And, and so that was, that, that's one such example. Hmm. I imagine that that had to have been like such a great, like grounding practice for you too. Yeah, it was, it was wonderful. And I've got one of those now in Portland, which I'm really grateful for. It's not the same community or the same type of community, but I found another place of connection with Jesus just as an individual human being. And, and it's not that if I let people know, then they would go there too. It's nothing like that. It's purely like, um, it's the people that you love the most. You get to share experiences with them that don't become public. And I, I love Jesus and I want to walk with them my whole life. So that means that we've got to have some moments. It's like, this is just me and you, man. You know? Yep. Yeah. No, I, I love it so much. Well, as I mentioned earlier, you've written this book, praying like monks, living like fools. And anytime that I talk with somebody, like I love hearing the story behind what led someone to creating this work of art. And so I would just love to hear from you. Like, what was the the thing that made you, you know, birth this idea? Was it a moment, a series of events? Can you just talk to us about the origin story of it? Yeah. I mean, it was a long series of events. This, that could be a two hour story. So I'll try to yeah. get the two minute version, <laughs> but in the book's introduction, I talk about how I came to faith and I, I came to faith as a 14-year-old prayer walking alone around my public middle school because my youth pastor at the time challenged me, what do you think God would do in your school if you prayed for everyone in your upcoming eighth grade class by name every day this summer? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, why don't you find that out? And that really intrigued me. And because it wasn't putting God to the test, but it was almost like a faith experiment. I just realized, you know what? I've actually uh, never, I've only interacted with God in very safe environments. I've never given God a chance to surprise me or disappoint me. So this seems like a great way to sort out whether I really believe all this Jesus stuff or not. Mm -hmm. And then two things happened. One is I absolutely fell in love with God that summer alone through prayer as a 14-year-old kid. I discovered that I didn't just believe in God in an ultimate sense. I enjoyed God's company, and I started to believe he enjoyed mine. And I, I, what began as an experiment became like a desire in me to go and be alone with him. And then I started a Christian outreach ministry in my public middle school as a result of that. And by the end of my eighth grade year, it was the largest 
extracurricular in the school and I'd seen a third of my eighth grade class that I'd prayed for all summer come into relationship with Jesus at 6.30 a.m. meetings in the school. And so it was like, I did everything wrong. If you read the book, you can know about it, but I did everything wrong. And the only explanation was, oh my word, God really does listen to my prayers. He delights in my company and he longs to use me for this incredible kingdom that he's building in the world. And I want to be a part of it because I thought following Jesus was deferring all the best adventures and most fun parts of life. So that like as this noble laying down of something, but what I've discovered is actually the most fun adventures and the wildest way you can live is to get on board with what Jesus is doing. And so I had that story as a young man, and that's a story of prayer that God has replayed in my life again and again and again. It became the foundation of the church, not the story, but prayer. This way of prayer became the foundation of the church that I planted and led uh, in New York City, and it was so alive and at the heartbeat of that church. And then when I discerned through like an incredible incredibly surprising series of events that I felt I was meant to move to Portland and take on leadership at a different church. That's what prompted me to write the book because I felt like I have lived a sacred story to this ground, like these 12 years I've been in New York and these people I've gotten to share it with. And it was in uh, 2020. So it's in the midst of COVID. And I thought, I want to I put this story on paper while I'm still here in this city. So that's what I did. I wrote the first draft of it on Saturday mornings and Tuesday evenings in the middle of lockdown in New York City. And it was important to me to do it there because it felt like a record of so much of what God had done in me in that place. And it was almost like for me an act of saying, thank you, thank you, thank you for this last chapter before I began the next one. Hmm. What do you wish that more people knew or understood about prayer? Hmm. What a wonderful question. I wish that, uh, I wish that more people understood that at the end of the day, prayer is relationship, not formula. And what that means is that prayer will be the source of your most treasured moments and most painful moments with God. Um, my, my wife is the person I'm closest to in the world. And what that means is that she has the greatest potential to delight me and hurt me of anyone else that I've led into my life. And that's what we do when we cultivate a deep and rich relationship with God through prayers, we invite him deeper. And so if you give uh, yourself more deeply to prayer, then you will journey deeper with God. And that means that you will have more moments of weeping as you're wrapped in his love, more moments of like eye widening wonder at the fact as you encounter his power through you in prayer and more moments of like head shaking pain as you go through circumstances where what Jesus seems to be promising is not matching my life experience And that is so painful. And as I'm talking to God about it, I feel like I'm speaking into a silent void. Like I'm not being heard. I'm not being valued. I'm not being cared for. 
And that is a relational journey, and it is the journey of prayer. And I think most people seem to interact with prayer as a formula, um, you know, whether it be, and it's usually like, which form of prayer was I taught first? And so for some, you might have emerged from a contemplative tradition where prayer is this kind of way to still and quiet your body and your inner world and release your anxieties. And for others, it's prayers, a list of requests that I bring to God. And if I say them enough, and if I mean them enough, then he might do one or two of them. And, and so prayer is always like more like an exercise routine than a relationship, you know, where it's like follow these steps. And over the course of time, I will grow stronger spiritually and get the results that I want. And Prayer is not that. Prayer is a relationship. And I wish that people knew that and went after relationship to God enough to discover it. Brother, you know, I, I, I completely agree that it can be more like a formula. How do you how do you move more towards that relationship or that relational side of it if it has been like a formula for you? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the main, I guess to give the simplest advice I can, I would say, number one, pray the way that is most natural to you, not the way that you think you're supposed to do it. And number two, be brutally honest and ruthlessly guard yourself against saying what you think God wants you to say. Um, So let me break those down a little bit. When I say pray the way that comes most naturally to you, here's what I mean. Um, Some people, uh, most people, when they picture prayer, picture someone seated with their hands clasped and their head bowed talking to God. And that is a totally fine way to pray. For me, when I pray that way, I zone out and forget what I'm doing. And then I realize five minutes later, I'm like, oh, sorry, God, I forgot. I was, try- I was trying to talk to you. Um, so if it's most natural to you to write prayers, if you process well that way, then journal out your prayers. If it's most natural to you to move your body or walk or ride a bike or go on a run and pray that way, then pray that way. If it's most natural to you to take little moments in your day that are currently being occupied by something else and repurpose them for conversation with God, like taking your commute to and from work and choosing, I'm not going to pop in my earbuds or turn on the stereo in my car. I'm going to be silent and just like let whatever comes up. I'm going to talk to God about it in my thoughts, then do that. But most people think there's a way that they're supposed to pray. And so that's the form their prayers take. And they never actually discover maybe their pathways to prayer that are most natural for them. So just do whatever's most natural and assume like God just wants to talk to you and he doesn't really care exactly how you do it. And then there's ways that you'll learn later on that are going to form you in prayer as you swim against the current of your preferences, but start just with your preferences. And then secondly, um, uh, yeah, I would just say, be brutally honest. Most people pray what they think they're supposed to pray. Um, Mm -hmm. And if you read the Psalms, then you discover that prayer is meant to be an honest dialogue with God. I mean, David is all over the map in the Psalms in terms of his inner motivations, his desires aligning with God's. And not only does he pray that way, but then they made it into the canon of scripture. Like there's, there are things in the Psalms that are quite literally heretical, biblically speaking. Yeah. And yet they're in the Bible. So what, what made them get into the Bible? Only they're only exemplary in that they're honest, that they give language to our experiences and our feelings and our emotions. And they give us permission that God can handle you talking to him about all this stuff. 
So stop trying to sort out your motives and have the perfect speech before you start talking to him and just like let it rip the way you would your best friend and and then see what happens. That's the advice yeah. that I would give. No, great. That's great. Thank you. One of the, the areas that is most difficult for me to pray is whenever I have a friend who is going through, you know, a period of suffering or going through a very difficult time or a hospital visit or something along that and dealing with the tension of God, I know that you can heal this, but I also know that you might choose a different path as well. (laughs) And trying to figure out like, it's, it's one thing for me. Like I feel like individually, like, okay, I am okay with that tension I found it it's difficult whenever you don't know if people are, if they can live in that tension, if that makes sense. And I would just love your thoughts on how have you learned how to deal with that? Because like, I, like, I don't want to promise them something that obviously can't happen. Well, at the same point, I still want to point them to that hope that we have in Jesus. Yeah. So to clarify the question, basically, like for example, you're saying, someone's sick and in the hospital they may or may not make it and you're thinking well do i encourage a family member to pray for miraculous healing or or do i give them more of like a may your will be done kind of prayer yeah because because you're you're comfortable praying for miraculous healing and knowing it may or may not happen but i'm still going to ask god for it but you're like i don't want to set them up to get gut punched is that kind of what you're saying yep that's it exactly Man, I, I think I personally, I never tell someone how to pray or what to pray. Yeah. But I'm comfortable talking to God about anything in front of anybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, so often we pray as if we're covering for God. We're like, we, you know, tell them what we want and we're like, but your will be done because your will is the perfect will. And, and and I think prayer, you know, when Jesus teaches us to pray, he says a whole lot of things about prayer. One thing he says is that God's a father who loves to give good gifts to his children. Mm-hmm. And I would never want one of my children to withhold what is their true desire from me, because they thought dad may or may not give this to me. Um, you know, I don't mind that my kids ask me for dessert far more often than I give it to them. I I think it's cute and funny. And, and as they mature and grow up, um, if, if they can ask me for ice cream incessantly, then hopefully that creates a pathway where they'll communicate with me about more complex desires that they feel Mm -hmm. as they grow up, um, that they're not sure how I'll react to. But if they're, if they're fearful to ask me for what they want, then that, that sets a really bad precedent for how they're going to interact with me as they grow up and deal with more complex desires. So I personally just feel really comfortable uh, with telling God what's on my list and then saying, and I love you and I trust you. And I also personally have an understanding of prayer that that includes more factors than just like whether God decides to do this or not. You know, like yeah. like Pete Gregg breaks it down, I think, better than anyone, where he talks about 
there's three factors that go into whether our prayers get answered or not. It's God's will, God's world, and God's war. So his breakdown is like, sometimes you can just literally be praying outside of the will of God. And, and God, uh, you know, will rarely violate his own will to, yeah. you know, like, God, please give me a Ferrari that, that may or may not be in line with God's will. Probably not, if that's something you're praying. Um, and then there's God's world. So C.S. Lewis, I think it was, who famously talked about uh, miracles have to be rare or else they cease to be miracles. So God has set up the world in a certain way, right? Like God creates laws to govern the world, like gravity. Uh, so if I ask God for me to fly, it would be a miracle if he answered that question. And if God let me fly every time I asked him, then God would constantly be violating the laws of the world that he set up, and it would cease to be a miracle. It would just be a common thing that happens to anyone who asks God for it, and he would operate more like a genie, violate the laws of the world than a God who set up the world for our flourishing and governs it by laws. And then lastly, there's God's war. And I think a lot of people, prayer becomes problematic if we don't believe we have a spiritual enemy. And Jesus is pretty demonstrative that there's an evil one and that there's evil in the world. And in my experience is that these days, most people find it easier to believe in a God of infinite love than, than a, a being of evil that is corrupt and trying to corrupt God's good creation. But it's it's pretty much impossible to read the scriptures and, and not come to that conclusion. There's a moment in the book of Daniel where Daniel prays a prayer, and then 21 days later, he has an encounter with an angel, and the angel says, I came the second you prayed, but then I was held up in a cosmic battle with, with a dark force and, and uh, that exists over this land. And it took me 21 days to get here because of that. And that's that's an interesting biblical moment that people typically don't talk about. Jesus, when he taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer, says, deliver us from the evil one. That's the final movement of the prayer. So basically, I also believe that for the friends sick in the hospital, that sickness was never a part of God's design, that he repurposes suffering for our good because he's that good, but that God... Uh, God created us for life and life to the full and that Eden in the beginning and the garden city in the end is a place where death, sickness, sorrow, and pain no longer exist. So when I pray for healing, I'm saying, God, would you fast forward? Would you bring this person's healing into the already side of the already not yet of your kingdom? And if you don't, then I know that one day you will answer that prayer and this person will you know, live with me forever if they're your follower. And so I feel comfortable asking God yeah. for things like that because I think the answer is yes. It's just a matter of, is it yes now or is it yes then? Mm -hmm. And either one of those I can live with. And so I think it takes the pressure off a little bit. That was probably more of a robust answer than you were looking for, but no. those are my thoughts. No, that is, that is so good. Thank you for sharing that. You know, at, at some point, we are going to have the, the moment to wherever we do have an unanswered prayer and we do mm -hmm. experience disappointment. And one of the things that I know that you talk about in the book is getting to the question beneath our disappointment. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Yeah, I think everyone has uh, an ex unanswered prayer works like this. You have an experience in the world that does not align with the character or promises of God as you understand them. And that creates disillusionment. 
So to continue to use the same example, I, I lose a loved one far earlier than I ever expected. That's an, that is an incomprehensibly painful experience. And especially if I've been asking God to do something about it, that makes me feel like God could have, but God didn't. Um, and so the immediate question on the top of that is, God, why didn't you heal my spouse? Why didn't you heal my brother? Why didn't you heal my child? But then there's a question underneath that question that is aimed less at the circumstance and more at the character of God. And it might sound something like, God, are you really good? God, are you really powerful? God, do you really love me or do you just love generally like the world? God, are you really my redeemer? As it says in scripture sometimes, or are you just the redeemer like of the general story? Or maybe God, are you even listening? Um, and so there's always a question beneath the question and, and the jump that I just made from the surface question to the deeper question, I made in a second because this is a trivial and abstract example. Mm -hmm. But if you go on that journey personally, usually identifying what is my deepest question doesn't happen in a moment of reflection. It happens over time as I'm willing to engage my pain and look it right in the eye and say, God, in light of this, what is the question that, that I am asking you? Hmm. That's so good. I got one other thing I want to ask you about, but before that, is there anything just top of mind regarding, you know, the book or anything that we've talked about that you want to make sure that we cover? Not at all. I'm enjoying this <laughs> conversation. So yeah. wherever you want to go is great with me. Great. The last thing that I want to ask you about, which, which really got me thinking was you talk about the different types of confession as it pertains to prayer as well. Mm -hmm. And like the different levels of that. Can you just unpack what that confession looks like? Yeah. Let me, let me pull that up real yeah. fast so I can refer to, to what I actually wrote. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I talk, you mean like the list where I go through blatant, I, deliberate. Yep, yep. Yep. So that would be like a, a historic way of understanding sin, um, a more comprehensive and broad understanding of sin within the Christian tradition. So, you know, we, we have this tiny little three letter word in English, sin, and Typically, sin becomes a painful concept for people because it gets defined narrowly. Um, you know, it's, it's like sin is X, Y, or Z, and it's this narrow, very specific definition of sin. There's actually eight Hebrew words for the one English word sin. It's a massively broad concept in, in the scripture. And I think that throughout Christian history, confession has been understood more broadly. And that hasn't actually led to like wallowing in guilt more frequently. It's led to enjoying the victory of Jesus more freely because confession is actually an incredibly freeing practice, not a wallowing in shame practice. So here, here's the four levels that people have thought about their sin uh, historically. There's blatant sin, which is like obvious, universally recognized sins within both the culture and the kingdom of God. So if you think about something like murder, murder is a sin 
in the kingdom of God, and it's a sin in the culture that we live in. You're basically not going to find anyone out there that's like, I think murder is okay. You know, it's everyone is in agreement, like, yeah. yeah, this is not how it should be. Then there's deliberate sin, which are sin, like usually behavioral sins that are recognized in the kingdom of God, but not within the world. Uh, so, so an example, like related to that could be within like the, the boundaries of healthy expression of human sexuality, or, or maybe the what is okay in terms of the way that I speak to someone else. Mm-hmm. Or, or, you know, something like that. But it's a way yeah. that's like, you know what, within the biblical story that I believe, this is outside the bounds of what will lead to life. But in the culture, this is actually like totally in bounds in terms of what leads to life. Then there's unconscious sins, which are deeper. They're like thought patterns that lead to or give birth to expressed sin. Um, so I- examples like that could be like... Um, you know, I tend to prioritize productivity over people. I have a personality structure that leads me to think that there's nothing more important than checking items off my agenda. And that's what makes me feel like I had a good day. At the end of the day, if I feel like, wow, it's really productive. I got so much done. That feels good to me. But then the way that like that deep thing within me sometimes expresses itself outwardly in that I'm always 15 minutes later getting home than I said I would be. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm disregarding someone else. Or I tend to say no to an invitation to lunch with a coworker because I like to do a working lunch alone at my desk. And so I'm, I'm actually choosing to withhold friendship. So because this makes me feel good to check items off my agenda or, mm-hmm. or when I'm around my children, I'm emailing on my phone <clears throat> because I love getting things done, and yet that's actually robbing me of the relationship I'm meant to have, and I'm not being the father I'm supposed to be. All of this I'm saying uh, abstractly, by the way. Uh, I've got things wrong with me, (laughs) but I'm not trying to tell the whole world about them right now. Um, And then finally, the fourth and final like core layer would be inner orientations, which have to do with disordered trust structures that exist deeply within us. This is often the things that people identify and process through with a therapist these days, if you have a really good therapist, but historically it's been something that was processed with God. And so in a lot of Christian literature, that would be called the false self. So it's ways of being or drumming up my own significance that are actually like the Genesis fig leaves. This is me putting on a covering and it makes me feel good and safe and secure. It delivers something to me that God wants to deliver to me, but in a false and artificial way that in the end will rob me of the good thing that God wants to give me. Uh, It's also sometimes called the ego. This would be the ego that lives within you. Um, and, And so when you can identify and begin to name those false trust structures that exist deeply within you, those ways of of being in the world that make you feel safe, that actually are robbing you of a gift God wants to give you. That's sort of the deepest level of sin. So there's blatant sins around the surface. Then there's deliberate sins. Underneath deliberate sins are unconscious sins, uh, which are the, the inner things that give birth to the outer sin. And then there's our inner orientations, which is like the depth that our dysfunction has gotten to at the very core of my being. Mm. That's great. Uh, I guess the last thing I want to ask you real quick is what's something that has helped you recently in your prayer life? 
Mm. You know, there's uh, two things come to mind. One, I had an amazing, uh, I had an amazing summer vacation after my first year in a new city, a new church, and it was a wild year, full year, full of so much good stuff, but man, it was packed full. And a rhythm that died in me in that year is I, I typically take a quarterly two-day silence and solitude retreat, like just me and Jesus could be anywhere, but typically in some place where there's nature around me and not hustle and bustle, but in some dingy cabin in the woods or whatever. And I'm just being with him and giving him space to speak to me and me to him. And that's a rhythm I didn't live in my first year in a new city. And I just kind of felt on that summer vacation that God put his finger on that and, and said, Hey, I miss this between us and you miss it too. Uh, and, and I do both in relational connection to him and in the fruit that it bears in my inner world. And I saw the cost of not observing that rhythm. And then I got to talk with a friend who I think for her, that's like the most natural pathway. She's one of the people I respect the most and, and just hear kind of about her prayer life. And it just woke so much longing in me. So that was really helping me. And then I, when I came back from vacation, I put those retreats in my schedule before anything else. Yeah. So I was like, okay, they're set for the year. Now I have to plan around them. And, and that was really helpful. And then the other thing is a phrase that someone said to me earlier this week, they were talking about how they pray the Psalms. And this individual said, I read the Psalms until I hear my own voice. And I found that so helpful because I think, oh, that's how I do it too. But I didn't have a language for it like that. And this week in particular, I've been reflecting on Psalm 127 and Psalm 71. And I've gone about it that way. I've just read until I hear my voice and then I stop. And I allow, allow that line to kind of become the frame for dialogue between me and God. So those things have helped me. Has anything helped you recently, Caleb? Uh, I would say my, man, it, it, what convicted me the most was what you were saying about just God saying to you, I miss this time. And mm. right now I'm in such a busy season that like, I very much feel like I miss that time right now. Cause it's not happening as much as I want to. And so thank you just for that reminder and encouragement, just because, um, yeah, just that's just that silence before God, um, it's just been something that I've treasured a lot recently and learned about a lot recently. And, mm. um, I miss that. And so thank you for the reminder and for the encouragement. Absolutely, man. Yeah. Well, I know that people are going to want to pick up your book, Tyler, praying like monks, living like fools and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Uh, if you go to my website, which is just tylerstaten.com, it couldn't be easier to remember. Um, the links to buy the book at everywhere you buy your books in every format you might want is yeah. on there. And, and that's probably the best way to keep up with me as well. I think my Instagram is linked there also. So th those are the best ways to keep up. Awesome. Well, Tyler, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And just thanks for doing the work as well. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed chatting with you. 
So I think coming out of that conversation, there's really two things that that makes me think or that really stood out to me. I think the last thing, and I talked about it towards the end of the interview, of just what he was saying of, of missing his time with God and God missing his time with him as well. And it has just been a very busy season for me as well. And I find myself craving more time with him of silence and solitude. And I find myself very much missing the time with him and wishing I could spend more time with him and trying to figure out how to do that. And I think it was just a big perspective shift for me and a big just change of just changing my mind or just enlightening me of how to think about not only do I miss that time, but God misses that time as well. And it was just very challenging and very convicting to me. And I think the other one or the last one is that of just what we were talking about of, of the, of the different types of confession of sin of realizing all the different forms of that and is both encouraging and enlightening to me of realizing that in some areas I have come a long way that I don't struggle with some sins as has maybe as much as I used to whether it be you know the the blatant sins and realizing that because I think that sometimes where we tend to focus is on the blatant sins for an and really starting to focus on the the unconscious or the inner orientations and digging into that. So it's encouraging in one perspective, it's enlightening and convicting in another sense as well. Just there's a lot more, a lot more room to grow and a lot more uh, room to, yeah, a lot more room to grow. And so those are the two things that stood out to me. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to continue to learn from the Learner's Corner podcast, one of the best things that you can do is subscribe to the newsletter, which I create and release every single week to where I tell you some of the best things that are making me think, some of the things that I'm enjoying from podcasts to movies to articles to YouTube videos, literally just anything that is capturing my attention and imagination and making me think are things that I am enjoying or am enjoying as well. And with that, I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you to Tyler for joining me today on the podcast and having just a very wonderful conversation. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.